What makes a life a good one? Is it the adventure you have? Or the friends you find along the way? Maybe it's pursuing your passion while striving to protect, defend, and save what you believe in every single day. So, what makes a life a good one? In the Coast Guard, we think it's all of the above and more. But you'll have to find out for yourself. Visit GoCoastGuard.com to learn more. Wait, we got it. Okay. I actually was not recording on my computer. Okay, now I'm recording. <laughs> yeah, let's let's do the clap again. All right, cool. All right, one, two, three. All right. Hi, this is Josh Marshall. This is the Josh Marshall Podcast. We are eight weeks into our TPM lockdown, and you're probably uh, six weeks or maybe seven weeks, depending on where you live, on your lockdown, on your working from home, if you're working from home, different story, if you're an essential worker, if you're someone in healthcare, a very different story, but here's where we are, and we are uh, still doing our podcast in, in this new setup. We do it we do it remotely now. It's sort of, we actually do the podcast as a Zoom call. Which probably everybody is familiar with now. Yeah, uh, mm-hmm. we do the Zoom the way we, we live now. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> we do the Zoom call, and then separately, we record it. So the Zoom call is really just there, so we can see each other and sort of hear each other in real time. And then each of us, all th- all three of us, have a kind of a uh, you know a rudimentary recording system in our apartments or in our homes or whatever in 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 which we put it all together so uh, i keep uh i keep meaning to surprise you guys from my closet or something some kind of small more <laughs> acoustic dampening kind of room but not yeah it's still but you in, have still the, my you room. have the sure mic now right i do yeah, yeah this yeah. is this is like for for our listeners this is a a mic you can get uh, that attaches to your iPhone. So it's still pretty small and relatively low tech. Uh, but for anybody who's doing their own podcasting or doing, you know, or whatever their need is, it, it, it takes your iPhone from, you know, so, so sound quality to makes it a lot, makes it a lot Definitely. better. Uh, before we get any further, let me remind you that the Josh Marshall podcast is brought to you by Grady's cold brew Ice coffee. Just the best, uh, cold brew iced coffee uh, anywhere in the world, really. And you can buy it almost anywhere in the world. Certainly, you can get it, uh, if you're in the United States, you can get it in in a lot of local supermarkets. You can order it at Grady'sColdBrew.com. You can also get it at Amazon.com. If you're ordering for the first time at the Grady's website, Grady'sColdBrew.com, you can get 20% off on your first order with the promo code TPM, TPM. So give it a try great stuff uh as i as i've said a few times in the olden days when we all worked from a physical office in 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 uh, new york and dc uh, our office really powered by it i've been drinking it forever and it's really great stuff so it's not just that it's a sponsor of our show and we, we'd say nice stuff it's it it is a great product so That's so right. give it a try i'm currently drinking leftover cold coffee over ice so a, a significant step down from Grady, so don't don't make my don't be like me. Get the good stuff and treat yourself. And mine is a Seven <laughs> Eleven coffee. Well, we gotta get, we gotta get some. I'll, I'll talk to Joe. We have to get uh, some Grady sent out to the some Grady sent out <laughs> to the staff because you know they that have would be nice. they um, 
and th- and this is this can be an extended part of the of the Grady's ad. You know, you you can get you can get it as as liquid, right, in bottles, or they have these boxes, which is a little kind of like wine in a box sort of thing. But you can also get the 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 grounds. Basically, they come in. They, they call them bean bags, and you c- you can brew it yourself at home. And that's actually what what we've been doing since obviously mm-hmm. to get uh, if if you're a heavy can uh, caffeine consumer like I am, if you know, if, if you're shipping out boxes and boxes of Grady's through the through uh, through uh, UPS or the mail or some sort of uh, delivery service. That's a pretty you know essential workers have it hard enough, uh, but you know yeah. but, but doing that. So anyway, give it a try. Absolutely. Great stuff. Yeah. So last week we were talking about uh, Trump, you know, calling Americans warriors and just getting back out there and and getting back to work and out into public life and all that kind of stuff. Um, I think. We were talking just before the just before we started recording about the total lack of federal kind of guidance and a federal response to the coronavirus, and it's really up to states to plot their own path forward, basically. And we've seen that in in the various kind of reopening plans in different states, places like Georgia opening hair salons and things like that, places like Texas also opening up but taking a slightly more conservative route, and then you know other places like New York, certain areas are. Only I guess only a few areas are starting to to reopen a little bit. I saw in Cuomo's press conference before we started today, I think elective surgeries can resume in New York State, uh, except for in the New York City area, Buffalo, a couple other places like that. Um, so Trump has gone from this warrior talk to earlier this week, there was a press conference on testing where Trump got out in front of cameras to basically say, we've prevailed on testing, we're doing so much testing, and it's great. Uh, and I think he sort of debuted a new campaign slogan, transition to greatness. So that's that's where we're at now, and everyone can look forward to that. Um, we were talking, like I said, before we started recording, just about kind of how we're living our own lives, uh, how we're getting outside for a breath of fresh air, or how we're trying to stay active to not just kind of wither away inside. Um, Josh, I'm curious, you know, in a normal kind of administration, do you think, would we just have a more steady flow of information coming from the federal level that would help you just, dis- you know, decide, okay, how safe is it for me to, to take a jog around the park? Or, you know, how can I you know, how can I have some semblance of a, not exactly a normal life, but just one that can kind of, we can exist through to get through the, you know, the next six or 12 months or so. Well, I think one of the things that we lose track of that that is, because we, we see it so much, we, we, we lose a sense of, of, of what could be different. Everybody is very sensitive and reactive to signaling from people in authority. That sounds kind of authoritarian and, and, and obedient and stuff but most of us don't don't know exactly what the what the right thing to do is in in new and frightening situations so it, it's i think it's good to imagine an alternative reality in which in which people in government were all basically speaking from the same page and saying okay we're at this stage of of the epidemic what we need to do is you can go out jogging, stay six feet away from each other. You can do X. You can do Y. Uh, try not to do this very often. Just, just some basic clarity. But what, but what's happened is, is ev- since everything is now partisan, you can everybody can go to their own source of authority and say, well, this this person says this, this person says that, and obviously you have the president of the United States, both 
supporting and to a degree enforcing these lockdowns and social distancing, but also undermining them, both from Twitter and also through the court, you know, through the courts. So it's 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 very confusing. And and one thing I notice is, you know, you've had a few of these uh, cause celebras on the right with, you know, kind of dissident hair salon trying to reopen or, you know, dissident barber. Kate, I think you had that piece yesterday about the guy in in Flint, Michigan or something like that. And, you know, we're a society, we have the rule of law. You 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 can contest the government's actions in court. That's that's how it should be. That's normal. But a lot of these things, I think you see that a lot of these things, these, these, you know, kind of high profile attention getting things are happening because they're being validated from on high. You know, the president of the United States is basically saying, this is unfair. This is too much. You got to do that. You know, you're, 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 you're getting supported by uh, one of the major political parties. So a lot of the, there's, there's been some, uh, there's been some commentary over the last week, some of it accurate, that Americans aren't great rule followers. There, there is a, you know, there is a libertarian streak in American society, and people won't put up with a lot of stuff that maybe people put up with in South Korea or even in countries in Europe. And there is a, there is a truth to that. Some of that is really accurate. But I think what we lose track of is that a lot of that is just when you have the president of the United States constantly saying this is unfair, this is too much, this is destroying the greatest economy in the world, uh, this isn't fair to me, Donald Trump, that has a big effect. And that's a yeah. lot of that is what we're seeing. I will say even the guidance on masks has been very confusing and kind of all over the place. At the beginning of the, the crisis, uh, you know, obviously there was a huge shortage of personal protective equipment in hospitals and clinics and the like. And the idea was, you know, if you have a mask, that should go to a frontline worker, right? That masks aren't that effective or that important to wear personally or out in public. That's obviously shifted over the last couple months. Um, here in New York City, I would say nine out of 10 people I pass on the street are wearing a mask. That includes people who are jogging or trying to exercise outside, which is extremely difficult to do so when you have a piece of cloth over your face, um, as I've found out in recent weeks. But, um, you know, now there's it sort of feels like it's gone a total 180 and and the idea you know is that wearing a mask is more effective and helps kind of stem the the you know the spread of the virus and even as someone who is engaged in the news you know immersed in the news every single day i feel like i just i don't have a great sense of okay can i jog without a mask is that going to infect you know a dozen people around me in the in the local park or is that okay and there's just kind of no there's no good answer from anyone, I guess, at the federal level to kind of help make those decisions. And, you know, maybe that's more of a personal decision or maybe that should be left up more to like a, you know, the mayor or things like that. But um, it's sort of hard to just make those calculations in your personal life. Well, and I think all of this is being exacerbated by the fact that right now you see other people as a threat because I mean, they are, you know, everyone could be a vector of disease. Um, And I think that's a message that's gotten through to people. So it's kind of put us all in this attitude of instinctual distrust of, or even, 
anger towards other people. Like I've seen this a lot, even in, um, you know, the 7-Eleven on our street, I was getting coffee and this big screaming fight broke out between two people that was caused because one person felt that their six foot bubble was invaded by the other person, you know, and not least because there's not room in most stores for everyone to stand six feet away. But I think, so you've already got that happening, that the way this disease spreads is from other people. So it is a, it's natural to feel a posture of defensiveness towards other people. And then on top of that, you have the dynamic that both of you just spoke to, which is a fracturing at the federal level, leaving these decisions up to governors, mayors, which means that then you have this confusing dynamic where maybe your state is being stricter than another state. And we're seeing people respond to that with these, you know, protests or exactly the, the stand by the barber who's defying the order, you know. And I think those that anger is more natural when you've got no unifying message, when you see we already live in this really polarized society and now you're seeing those people as the enemy, especially when it falls along fault lines that are already so developed. If you have an attitude of rural people chafing under stay-at-home orders that they feel are only necessary because of spikes of cases in urban areas, well, those people are pretty much, chances are, already going to be on opposite sides of the political spectrum. So it's it just feels kind of like a perfect storm of yeah. confusion, anger, scapegoating. And speaking of just the partisan divide, I mean, even during the Senate hearing yesterday where um, Dr. Anthony Fauci, the director of the CDC, the director of the FDA, um, all appeared remotely, you saw basically the Democrats on the panel who were there in public. This is like Tim uh, Tim Kaine, a few others, wearing masks um, in, the, in the hearing room, and then Republicans not. Rand Paul, who's a, a doctor himself, an ophthalmologist, I believe, no mask on there. I guess he had COVID and has recovered, so maybe he feels like there's some... <laughs> immunity he yeah, has. After but, um, spewing it into or, the Senate or, pool. Or, the, or yeah. that in his defense that he that he can't transmit. I mean, presumably. Right. I don't, we don't really know that, but there's a there's a decent chance that since he has had it, he cannot have it again, and therefore he mm-hmm. can't shed virus. Right. So for him, there's a... there's but, but a lot of this comes down to the reason, I think we've all had this, that we, when we're driving, we're driving down the road in the middle of the night, no one else is around for miles, we still signal. We, you know, we, 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 we still signal when we turn just because, I mean, part of that is just, it's, it's, it's so deeply, um, it, it's so deeply embedded in our, our practice. But part of it is too, is you just know, you, you can't be making a judgment when it's necessary. You just do it. And, and one of the things, I mean, there, there's, the science is not totally settled on masks. It's a very complicated question. And I think one of the important things about, Mask, and it's really something about important about public health in general. That let's say it only makes you fifteen percent, one five, less likely to transmit. Okay, now that's pretty minor for your interactions, but across society, that's a big deal because you know we know about those 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 equations about exponential spread. So even even effectiveness at the margins can 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 be a uh, you know can can be a pretty big deal the science is not totally settled 
But one of the things in that earlier period when everybody was saying, well, they do it in Asia, but it doesn't, you know, you don't really need it, but whatever, that's kind of their thing. They do it. They got freaked out about SARS, so they wear masks. One of the things that was clearly the case then, notwithstanding what the direct epidemiological effect is, and I think we see it here in the United States, not just in positive senses, but also in negative senses, it is a public signal. It is you saying, I take this seriously. I'm out here with a mask. I'm not fucking around. I'm not that person who's going who's gonna to cough in their hand and then put my hand on the doorknob and get you sick. It's a social signal. I'm on it. I'm taking this seriously. So I'm taking my health seriously. I'm taking your health seriously. And, um, and, and one of the things we, we saw in the early stages when, when it was really out of control in China and then sort of seeming out of control in, in you know, other, other countries right on the fringe of China was that, you know, you, you go outside without a mask and everybody's like, dude, what the fuck? Like, what the fuck? Well, how are you not have a mask on? Like, they may have, in, in, like, China, they had, you know, minders who would actually, like, enforce it. But in the emails and stuff we were getting from expats in China, they made this point very clearly. You go outside without a mask, and people are, like, freaking out at you. And some of that is just because they believed, and I think rightly believed, at least to a significant extent, that that was endangering other people not wearing a mask, but it also sends a broader signal of like, okay, you're not taking this seriously, and and that affects me. It's not just you. So there's a whole kind of social signaling thing, and and I think we've seen it in a very deleterious way in the U.S. in the sense that it has become a clearly partisan signal when you do and don't wear a mask. It's pretty clear. It's pretty clear at the time, even more clear in retrospect that when Mike Pence went to that factory and he didn't wear a mask, that was because the, the signals come down from Trump. You know, wusses wear masks. You know, fine, you want to wear a mask? Great, I'm not going to wear a mask. And that point you made about on that Senate hearing, David, you know, that the Republicans, you know, not wearing masks. So there's, you know, and, and that is, A, I think that's probably bad from just a purely public health standpoint, but it's also not great that you have one political faction in the country saying all this science stuff, all you public health nerds, whatever, you know, I, I got a different take and so I'm not wearing a mask. Well, and on top of that, which I think is true, is it just makes it so hard to be a human during this, to have any sense of moderation. Because when it's become a political attitude, uh, you are either you know, all for full lockdown, you know, stay in your house, accept in emergencies or, you know, fling wide the doors of every business right now. It's really hard to be anywhere in the middle because yeah. you do have these like social shaming factors of if you go outside or if you go in a park, even if you're being careful to try to stay away from people that, you know, you have a niggling sense of I'm, I'm doing something wrong. Um, or if you're trying to find any way to live during the shutdown you also have to be like acutely aware of this that that could be interpreted as you taking some kind of political stand while I think most people are just trying to figure out a way to have this the weird way we're living right now and to make it 
you know, bearable. One thing, yeah. I, one thing I think we see is, and I've certainly seen this, I've even felt this in some cases, that you see a Democratic governor, Democratic governor of whatever state, pick it, right? And you'll see it, you'll see a headline, oh, this governor, you know, easing some restrictions. And there's, you see people like, dude, what? Like, what are you doing? Are you, are you pro-Trump now? You know, <laughs> so, mm-hmm. so it, it, it goes to what Kate says, that it is, it, it, it has become so partisanized. It's not even really clear to the extent it's ideological that you y- you see that it's it it plays in both directions, and it's certainly my sense that. And again, I mean, I'm not an expert, but it's just kind of you know keeping my ears open and 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 seeing what seeing where the science is going. That if you are out in you know out in moving air in the in the open. If you are keeping a, you know, reasonable distance, whether it's six feet or 10 feet, you know, but the point, but that's, that's probably pretty low risk. And, and so some of the stuff about people say like, oh, you know, looked out today and the people are at the parks. What are people thinking? Some of the stuff, some of that stuff is probably okay, a relatively low risk. But again, it would be helpful if, if we had some public consensus on, you know, where the risk line is. And to a certain extent, even if, you know, is it 10 feet? Is it six feet? Is it 10 feet with the mask? It would be a positive good just to have a kind of a public consensus. Yeah. No, I totally agree. Even if it was kind of one little one way or, you know, either way, just because it it is very hard since everybody is scared to be litigating these decisions yourself. And if you do litigate them to see that some other person is litigating differently and then kind Mm -hmm. of to your point, Kate, about the fight in the 7-Eleven, because it's, it's, you know, it's tough. You don't want to be doing X and that's your comfort zone and see some other person doing something different because their actions affect you. Right. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, it's a great point. Um, So I was, I was curious to get both of your takes on this. I mean, kind of trying to look at why Trump doesn't have a plan, a vision, a a kind of an approach to the crisis at a national level, because obviously the economy is tanking. We have, you know, we've had record job losses Uh, on April. I think it was something like the unemployment ticked up to close to 15% that hasn't been seen since the Great Depression. And I think it's the highest level since the Bureau of Labor Statistics started keeping track in like the late 40s. you know, we have another weekly jobs report coming out tomorrow, I guess, where it's upwards of 30 million claims so far over the last uh, seven or eight weeks. And we have an election within about six months. Um, so it seems like it's in Trump's best interest politically uh, to be on the ball. And yet, I don't know, it, it's sort of, is he just entirely unable to rise to the occasion? Is it that the people around him are inadequate? Is it that these agencies have been gutted in such a way that they're hampered in their response. I mean, it just seems like the reality has to catch up to them at some point. And yet all we hear from the White House, whether it's Jared Kushner on Fox News saying, you know, doing having a mission accomplished moment, or we have Trump saying we've, you know, we've prevailed and, and all this, um, there's just sort of nothing there. So I'm, I'm just curious, like, why, why you think that is? There's, there is one point in here that I've been thinking about a lot, which is trying to envision what does life look like from now to the vaccine, you know, and we've discussed this a little bit, but it seems to me that the only tenable way to reopen 
swaths of the economy is pretty dependent on readily available testing, widespread testing, um, contact tracing, everything like that. And that's something, you know, I've been thinking about that and how Trump is not, you know, not getting behind that idea at all. Anything more than the, our testing has been beautiful or whatever he said. So that's, you know, why is that? Because he clearly knows that the economic devastation very well may have a direct impact on his reelection chances. So the, I don't, my like working theory right now is just that introducing a huge ream of testing is going to make numbers skyrocket, not because it's creating new cases, but because there are cases we don't know about or don't have recorded right now. And just because that would kind of be in line with his attitude at the beginning of this, you know, he came right out and said, I think about one of those cruise ships that he didn't want it to land because he didn't want the numbers going up. So, you know, it seems to me that maybe he's trying to do this thing, you know, with the aid of Jared Kushner and whomever else saying mission accomplished, everything's better. And I don't know, hoping that people don't wise up to the reality just because it seems it just seems to me that testing is the only way to at least in part mitigate the economic catastrophe that's on our hands. And without it. I don't know what you do. You reopen parts of your economy, more people get sick than what? You know, I just can't, haven't been able to figure out how else you do it. I, I guess my sense is, is it is a very, he's had a very reactive situational take on kind of everything that anything that he can't control or can't fix and has become a criticism of his, of him, gets discounted as as liberal and dumb and 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 whatever. And so it's 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 really just kind of reactive and I don't think there's a lot more than that. He kind of knows at some basic level he knows that he has to get back to where we were in the middle of February basically or middle of January. You know, kind of whatever was pre this low unemployment, blah, 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 you know, all that kind of good stuff, the greatest, what he calls the greatest economy in the history of the world. Um, <laughs> and so, you know, testing is kind of a, a, a good example of it. Testing has been the one thing that has been the kind of the consistent and I think most real and justified criticism of the entire response. Because when he didn't cause the pandemic. He didn't cause the existence of the virus. People are dying all over Europe. They were dying all over Asia. So at a basic level, that's not his fault. A lot of people were going to die. That's just the world that we are living in right now. Testing was the thing. And I think just at a basic level, since testing is bad for him, right, since it is not a plus for him, mm-hmm. it doesn't matter. And I, th- I, at some level, I think that squares with it probably also comes into play that the logic of testing, the logic of public health work in general, is a science-based, you know, um, data-based thing that is just, that's just not how he rolls in general, right? right? (laughs) So so it kind of fits. And that's, you know, when when he was all into hydroxychloroquine, that that thing about uh, a he wants a fix and and that he wants a quick fix 
he wants something that just makes it all fine and and we all do but but that's not necessarily how the how the world works and i think to him it definitely appeals to him the idea that oh it's not the smarties at the cdc it's it's some friends of mine who know this is the thing so some of it plays to i think pre-existing um you know, pre-existing tendencies that may be ideological at some level, but at, but at a basic level, it's just testing's dumb because testing makes him look bad. Um, and the the funny thing is that, and, and this is something that has been obscured, I think, a little in just how everything has unfolded over the last couple months, that the level of testing in the United States right now is getting to a pretty, you know, is getting, relative to other countries, is getting to a pretty strong level at aggregate numbers of tests. It's up to like almost 300,000 tests a day. It was 150,000, you know, just uh, two weeks ago, something like that. And one thing that is pretty key is that the uh, rate of tests coming back positive, both in New York and also across the country, they've come into alignment right now. They're coming down slowly. I think yesterday they were at 7%. And there's all the questions about, you know, are you testing the right people? Are you just, are you, are you focusing tests in ways that are not optimal? But as a general matter, when, when, when the rate of positives is coming down, that's good. That's a good sign. And it is a it, it you're at least going in the right direction that you're testing more and the and the percentage is going down as opposed to kind of you know you keep adding more tests and 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 you keep finding comparable rates of people who are positive. So the testing just through the sort of the inertia of the federal government and and even incompetent people kind of pushing in the right direction. It's going in the right direction, and and there are some good signs there. Uh, But a lot of – some of it is things make him look bad. Some of it is also – some problems are really tough and intractable and hard, and – that's not again. That's not how Donald Trump rolls. <laughs> you know, yeah. I mean, he wants I to totally cut, cut to the chase. Right. I hear you, and I think you're totally right. I guess what just blows my mind is that the most important thing to him is re-election, and he thinks that that's connected to a flourishing economy. And I guess I just find it unbelievable that I totally agree with you. He's reactive. He wants a quick fix. He's not one to, you know, labor over details, but. There's got to be somebody in his orbit that's like, the economy is not going to get better. It's going to get worse if we continue on like this. Testing is something that might make it more tenable to have more stores open. I don't know. I just, I guess I can't. Yeah, I, I, that's I, hard for me to wrap my my mind around. I certainly agree with you on the on the facts and just as a practical matter, I, I think that's. I mean, look, he's not a great president. Right. I, mean, I think we've seen he's, he, he, he's not he's, he's not really good at this. Um, and I think it's the case. There was there was something there was a I actually posted this on the site. So people may have seen this. There was there was a little video snippet of an interview with this guy, Donald McNeil, who's the basically the epidemics reporter at The New York Times, you know, health science, whatever. Uh, been on this forever. He was one of the people early on saying, hey, this is going to be bad. Uh, Christiane Amanpour did an interview uh, uh, with him, and 
you know, he's one thing that that jumped out at me. I mean, he basically was saying Donald Trump really blew it. You know, it's it's <laughs> it's kind of as simple as we thought. He really blew it. But one thing he one point he made though is that, and Alex Azar. Azar, I don't know, I forget how you pronounce it, uh, Secretary of Health and Human Services. So kind of like the person who really, this is under his, you know, under his authority. It's in his portfolio. He's he's come in for a lot of criticism, but McNeil said he was he was doing okay. He was doing a lot of the right stuff. He kind of recognized the urgency and he got into trouble because People under his uh, purview, particularly this this Nancy Messonnier, whatever her name is at the CDC, started saying things that scared people. Trump got mad about that, and he basically sidelined uh, Azar um, and put Trump uh, put Pence in charge of the <laughs> uh, task force. And again, I, I didn't really have a sense of like, was he doing well? I mean, he's another kind of. I mean, the testing goofs happened under his watch, uh, but I think. A lot of the people who would give that good advice are are sidelined, you know, and and, yeah. and the and the price of not being sidelined is, you know, I mean, Burks is sort of the example here. You know, she's she's kept in his good graces, and I think you know, largely at the cost of of things that she sees is probably not that important, you know, going on CBN and saying how he's the sort of, you know, kind of a, a, a an epidemiol- epidemiological natural, right? Gets all yeah. the science and stuff. Um, but it's not a totally satisfying explanation, Kate, and, and, and I have some of the same surprise, but I think that's it, you know, the people yeah. who... The, the people who, who are going to give him that advice are going to be people who tell him that things are not great and are not going to be great. And, and making them, you know, half not great is going to be hard and not going to be easy. And it's going to take a while. That's, that's not something he has a lot of tolerance for. Right. right. We've, um, so, you know, while the with federal government has kind of fallen on its face, we've seen governors rise in popularity. Josh, you were talking about a poll just a little bit ago showing huge spikes in approval ratings in places like New York and Michigan with Governor Whitmer, and especially in Ohio with Governor Mike DeWine. And, you know, just even a, a random kind of recent example that Kate wrote about, and maybe you can tell us more, Kate, is Governor DeWine coming to the defense of his health, uh, his own mm-hmm. state health secretary, right, who came under fire and basically showing leadership and saying, if you want to criticize someone, criticize me. Like, this is my administration. Um Kate, tell us a little bit more about kind of what's sort of going on in the states. I know you've been you've been writing about sort of some happenings in Michigan mm-hmm. and things like that, but um, some of these are kind of little flashpoints that bubble up into larger kind of themes. So, sort of, um, I don't know, what can you tell us about kind of what's happening more at the local level? I think the Dewine thing you mentioned has been very interesting to me because you know that's a state where legislature is Republican, governor is Republican. Uh, He's been definitely erring on the side of caution a lot more than other Republican governors, you know, not so much kind of scrambling for Trumpy approval. Um, But in that case, it's kind of interesting because you can tell there's a hesitancy from the Republican legislature to go after their Republican governor in a way that in Michigan, where you've got a Democratic governor and a Republican legislature, there is not such pause at all. They are, they've already 
taken her to court. You know, they are very pleased to kind of scapegoat her for the frustration and economic losses and everything. But in Ohio, there's, you know, if you're going to be a partisan politician, which most everyone is, you've you've got to thread the needle a little bit. And that's resulted there in the, that interesting dynamic where his health director has really become the one to come under fire. Um, not coincidentally, she is a woman and she has been on the receiving end of um, a lot of fire there. So yeah, he stepped in, said she's, you know, in my administration, I make the decisions, things like that. Um, and that kind of things in Ohio at least have been less tense than in Michigan, where it's just really at a boiling point. I mean, you've got that the legislature sued Whitmer last week. That's coming to oral arguments on Friday. Um, And Whitmer's team filed a response to the legislature today, which was just blistering, you know, just scorching. And meanwhile, Michigan's also the place where you had the armed protesters um, coming into the Capitol and making a huge splash. And then you have, um, you know, you're seeing these in a lot of states, but the the barber we mentioned earlier who won't shut his doors is holding full-fledged press conferences outside of his barber shop. Um, you know, his words are getting drowned out by people who are, you know, we're with you, Carl. We're adults. We can take care of our own health. Um, so it is really interesting how the political dynamics kind of play in there. Because if you look at Ohio and Michigan kind of objectively, it's like their governors are not doing all that different of things. But the political dynamics in the two states are just very different and is making for a hell of a lot more noise coming from Michigan than from Ohio. One thing I noticed about about that poll, and, and it confirmed things that we had seen by a scattering of polls of governors, you know, over the last month or something like that, is that we see all the protests. The protests are very visible. Uh, they're, they're, you know, they're meant to get attention. They're very flashy, all that kind of stuff. And that has driven a, a public conversation, a dialogue, a perception about people are getting tired of it, right? They're, 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 they're tired of the lockdowns. They're pushing to reopen their states. And Obviously, everybody's tired about it. There's not a question of tired, but you know that they're they're out of patience. They're done. And in fact, when you look at public opinion data, that that's really not what we see. If anything, I mean, I think polls have have universally been the case that people are much more worried that that their public leaders are going to push them back out too early then hold them back. And we see this at the governor, you know, in these, in these, in these governor polls. So the, the, the pretty clear pattern is that all of the governors in these sort of northern tier states, mostly Democrats, but DeWine is an example of, of a Republican, who've been pretty aggressive in lockdowns, their popularity is all sky high, like all over 70. I think DeWine's is up into like the upper 80s or something like that. And that's probably a combination of he still has a lot of Republican support, but Democrats are, you know, supporting his supporting his uh, uh, approach. But then the, the more pro-open states, they're all much less popular. Now, Florida and Texas, which you might call, you know, kind of like moderate pro-open states, I think their governors are like in the 50s, something like that. And the most high profile, Brian Kemp in Georgia, he's down like a 39. So the, the, the spectrum of support for governors 
is almost exactly in relation to their their aggressiveness on lockdowns on 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 quarantines which you know some of this when when you've got like you know Andrew Cuomo who there's you know there's real questions about how he managed things in in New York state still still sky high a, a decent amount of that is just people want to support their you know their public officials during a crisis but this sort of shows that you can if you if you sufficiently go against public perceptions on this you can break through that and 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 Brian Kemp has broken through that he's his, his people in his state are really disappointed in what he's doing and the other the other thing that that occurred to me about that and this this goes to something about how contemporary partisanship operates in the United States that with the governors the whole governor thing is still somewhat outside of the the national partisan vortex. Some of that's because your governor is like doing actually doing things that affect you immediately, and so it's a little more you're a little more in touch with the reality of 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 their actions. But one thing you see is that you have these governors who are basically following Trump's line. And Trump, people are so fixated on Trump, for or against, that his public approval has been fairly immune to this on both sides. He got a little bit of a bump at the beginning, but I mean, nothing compared, you know, he went from like 42% support to 44%, which for him is a big, you know, is a, is a big move. Um, but you can see where the governor's following him, they're taking a hit, even where he's not taking a hit. And that's just because Trump is just the, he's the public question in the United States. Tax policy isn't the question. Uh, Epidemic policy isn't the question. It's him, right? (laughs) So, you know, and since he's still him, that has made his support much more fixed than it is for these governors. But again, the big point being these polls really belie this idea that people are pushing to get back to work, they're, they're, yeah. they seem to be much more worried that they will be pushed to get back to work right. than like, you know, these kind of like uh, uh, dissident barbers who, you know, <laughs> are getting all the attention. It's funny because um, at the same time, I feel like there has been a bit of cell phone data reported on, right? That in the last couple of weeks, people have been on the move a little bit more than Absolutely, they were yeah. in, the, in, the, in the beginning of the lockdown. And that doesn't obviously suggest that people are itching to get back to work or kind of to end these lockdowns, but maybe it suggests that people are a little bit more lax about getting out of the house and maybe doing some of the exercise things we're talking about or going on walks or things like that. Yeah, and, and, again, and again, it's... it's it's another example of how the whole discussion and the whole the whole analysis that we have to do to make sense of what we should be doing gets so skewed because some of I mean first of all when we say that uh, there's no big push to reopen or or not that kind of like we're impatient we've had enough kind of thing pushing to reopen those polls still show like you know sixty thirty. 30% of the population is a ton of people, right? That's a ton of people. And when we're talking about these these this mobility data, even even moves by let's say it's only 10% of the population. That's still a ton of people, right? So so 
in some ways, we're talking apples to oranges. You know, in polls, we're generally talking about majorities are the met are the sort of the operative metric. But thirty percent of the population is still thirty percent of the population. So that's one point. The other point, and this is where it gets a little more unclear to me, that you know, my family is doing more, and we're in the heart of you know, the heart of the epidemic zone. I think we're being very responsible. We're not doing a lot more, but we're doing a little more, you know. So so the shift in mobility, it, it's, it's, we shouldn't, we shouldn't assume that that is growing irresponsible behavior or that it is a signal that people have had enough. Some of it is just modulating. I mean, I think it is, if you look at the arc of the disease and the arc of new infections, it's less dangerous in New York now than it was three or four weeks ago. That is objectively the case. There are fewer people with active infections. Now, obviously, the good, the, the best way to change that is for everybody to go back out and push it back up. But I think we should we should have some sort of you know cognitive and mental flexibility about what we, how we read those mobility numbers, both what will have bad effects, but also what, you know, what people's intentions are. Yeah, I feel like it's sort of, it, it's kind of like what Kate was talking about a bit earlier, that there can be a bit of a gray zone, right? Maybe you, you personally, after two months of being kind of stuck at home, are easing out a little bit, but you still support, you know, not going back to the office and things like that. And those, those totally, I think can exist in the same, you know, the same thought or approach is I don't think they necessarily contradict each other either. Yeah. I mean, I, I, again, I don't want to go too far on this because I'm not a spec, I'm not an epidemiologist, epidemiologist, all that kind of stuff. But I, everything I have seen does make it appear that again, you're in public there's there's moving air, there's wind. If you are significantly far from people, you're talking, I think, you're talking about very low levels of risk. Um, obviously, personal risk operates differently than societal risk. But I do think it, it, is, it, is, uh, it is important for us to distinguish, and I think public health people do this and and it would be better if we were all listening to their guidance and getting kind of a you know an agreed upon consensus about what we should be doing but going out going to a park maintaining significant distance from other people i think is just categorically different from going into a place of business a you know a closed space near other people. I mean, I, th- I think, and again, I'm curious what, what epidemiologists would say, and, and people, you know, people have to go to supermarkets, people have to get food, there are just certain things you have to do. But I think that even those things, even social distancing, even blah, 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 those things are much more dangerous. They're necessary, but the risk is much, much greater than, you know, kind of throwing out a blanket at a park, you know, getting some sun, yeah. And the next people are 15, 20 feet away, you know, 15, 20 feet and away. And honestly, those things, I feel like those small acts of can provide a outsized relief kind of just in your own mental health and kind of, you know, in a, it's, 
way of enduring kind of this this phase. And so maybe we can end on, Kate, you, had, you mentioned a piece that you had read in The Atlantic. I think it was by a, a professor or a public health expert of some sort talking about kind of the idea of closing down streets or making it more possible to do these kinds of things we're talking about. Um, tell us a little bit more about that, what struck you about it. Yeah, it was, it was so good. I really loved it. But it opened up talking about how in New York, um, during a really hot summer, people had been crowding into... Of course, I forget all the specifics, but um, cemeteries or the Greenwood Cemetery or something. That's right. That's right. Right. And you know, public officials were like, "Don't, yeah, don't do that. That's bad." But the way that they got people not to is they made Prospect Park. It was one of the most successful public health measures you know ever taken in the city's history. And I just, I think that idea is so much more in line with how I personally feel right now, which is just that it's hard to live under these draconian restrictions, no matter the, you know, putting aside the idea of, you know, the greater good and the sacrifice we're making and all that's very important. But on a personal level, it is hard to be resigned to essentially house arrest for the foreseeable future. And I just think moves by public officials like that of recognizing that and of, instead of taking an attitude of, socially shaming people for needing to get outside and feel the sun. The idea of close down the streets to cars, like let people have the room to safely be outside. It just seems to me to be such a more tenable position than as they juxtaposed in the article, de Blasio's push to get more police stationed at parks to police people. I just think the attitude of distrust is so much less tenable right now than the attitude of people cannot stay in their homes all the time. So why don't we make a way that they don't have to do that safely? Um, I think so yeah, New- that was in- just really resonant with me. Yeah. In New York, there's some moves towards that. I think today or yesterday, de Blasio announced he was closing down maybe nine additional miles of streets or something, but it's still really small, you know, right. kind of at, at a citywide level. And I hope that it catches on. And I know in some cities on the West Coast and maybe internationally too, some of these street closures are becoming permanent, right? That these streets will not reopen to traffic and that they will be more pedestrian zones. And I feel like if we can move towards something like that, that would be Great. Maybe there'll be peace between Josh and the biking community once and for once and for all. Well, you know, one thing, and this is this is, and I think this is at least uh, the case to a degree, almost everywhere in the country, is that there is already a move to pedestrianize a lot of areas. Mm-hmm. There's 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 already been a, a a number of areas in New York City where where this has been done. And that is a, you know, that that's a positive just in general. And I and I would say again, and this is this is something that I want to remind our listeners who who aren't from New York, haven't spent a lot of time in New York, is that the sidewalks are narrow. And they are narrow they are significantly narrower than they are in most other cities. Uh so you know, it it's New York City is not like most other cities in the United States. It, it, is, it is cramped. People are very crowded together. And even really basic things like the sidewalks, they're narrower. And so some of these things are just more necessary in, in New York City, apart from the fact that that's where the big epidemic has, has, has already happened. I mean, it does seem like a no-brainer. 
and it's yeah. and it's more necessary here than it is in Dallas or Los Angeles or Seattle or really almost every other big city. Right. And I just think in general that attitude of public health officials to take across the country would also kind of contribute to the problem that we opened the show with, which is what are you supposed to do? What's allowed? How do we stop people from yelling at each other? And, you know, I just think the disposition has to be, this is really hard for people. How do we make it easier instead of kind of promulgating this attitude of distrust and trigger finger anger at people who you think aren't taking this as seriously or are a threat? You know, that's just, I mean, what a horrible posture to have towards our fellow humans during this time that's already so scary and sad and confusing. I mean, yeah. I, I, I do think, I mean, some of that is, 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 is baked in. I mean, you look at the history of, of epidemics, it turns people against each other because other people are a threat. I mean, it's mm-hmm. not, you know, we're not imagining it. Other people threaten us by their proximity. And so some of that is baked in, but I completely agree with you that if there were more, if we had the ability to create a public consensus about what the, what, you know, what we're going to do. And and masks are not only a, a you know, kind of a, a, a disease vector issue. Again, they're part of a public consensus. And th- that signaling thing is, 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 is an important thing. I also think this is another case where the language of opening up, you know, op- reopening the economy has really set us back because not all of these things are the same. You know, we, 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 we got into an out-of-control situation and there was a big push and a right push to say, okay, everybody stop doing everything because we have to get this under control. It's out of control. We've at least gotten it stable and things like uh you know going back to work is not the same as can you go jogging can you go to the park these are different things right i mean they're different things economically they're different things epidemiologically and so we've created this kind of binary oh are you sort of like a stay-at-home softy or are you kind of for reopening it up and getting the economy back to work and stuff and that really that's a negative because it it there are there are certain things we do need to do and there are conversations we can have and there's ways we can experiment that we should be doing and that kind of binary thing makes mm-hmm. that harder and when you add on the sort of the partisan level it makes it you know makes it even makes it even worse yeah right. well that seems like a good place to end maybe we can do our uh a quick silver linings Yay. lightning round and um <laughs> and call it a day <laughs> Kate, do you want to go first? Yes. Okay, so my silver lining is that um, a couple of days ago, uh, my boyfriend and I went to the CVS near us and got about two backpacks full of Easter candy for less than $5. It was 90% off. I've never <laughs> seen a sale like that before. Are these like chocolate bunnies or what's the Oh, what's yeah. The I mean, we are running the gambit. There's chocolate bunnies. <laughs> there is like jelly beans. And every single candy basically puts out an Easter version of themselves. So there's like Reese's eggs, you know, yeah. and stuff like that. So basically we... Um, end of dazed it up and have 
about 18 tons of chocolate and never ever need to buy dessert again so you guys, you guys are lucky you're young and have have uh, high metabolisms so you can pull yeah. that off although listen i feel like mine is slowing i'm getting to that point so i gotta be careful about it uh all right josh what about you well, I had my, my, my younger son had a birthday and, and my wife and I were very uh, concerned, focused that he have a birthday, right? That is, that is fun and, and all that stuff since he obviously can't have a party and, and have friends and stuff. And so we, we put a lot of thought into it. And some of you may know about the service Cameo. Um, oh, yeah. <laughs> so it, it's uh, – when I – first heard about it it seemed like the kind of the corniest most the corniest internet uh digital thing what it is is famous people or some not terribly famous people become part of this service and then you can pay them money to send you a little video message so your birthday retirement you know whatever and uh there's again some pretty famous people some kind of random you know, Trump retreads are on there. <laughs> and so what we, but what we did, my, my son is a, he's, he's a very big sports fan and he's a big, uh, giants, uh, New York giants football fan. Uh, and so we got, there's a guy, uh, Justin Tuck, uh, who is a, um, a retired, uh, football player, retired giant, um, and we got him to do a message and, and for anybody who hears this, or if he hears it, he, he did a great message for my son. It was really personalized. We told him a little bit about, about our, you know, our son and how he's, you know, my, 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 my son is like, uh, you know, he, you, you can ask him about what happened in Super Bowl 10 and he's like, got the whole thing, right. Even though it was like 30 years before he was born, um, <laughs> And it was just, and we surprised him, and it was just really nice. He was clearly, like, totally shocked, and it meant a huge amount to him. And it made me realize that this service, as corny as it is, actually makes some real special moments possible. And it just filled me with a lot of, you know, good feelings, and it, and it all came off great. So that was my, that was yeah. my silver lining. It was a, it was a, it was a really a special moment for our family. I saw the um, Instagram video. It was adorable. Yeah, it was. It was <laughs> looked like it, was a, cool. it looked like a really nice moment. Yeah. Um, I'll keep with the exercise theme. Uh, I've been stepping out, kind of during the middle of the day, taking a little lunch break, and doing a, a quick jog around the park, a couple miles, um, sort of near my house. And that's something in the previous office life that we lived was not as not possible. So it's kind of nice to break up the day a little bit, get some fresh air, some exercise, and and finish the day with a, a little bit of a runner's high. So that's been nice for me. Yeah. I love that idea of something you are able to do now that you're usually not. We're usually right. so sort focused like, on the opposite. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. So it's been nice to, nice to take advantage of that. Yeah. It, it, it is funny to think about what, maybe we can talk about this in, the, in, in next week. It's funny to think about if you imagine a future where, every, where lots of people work from home. And some people work from home now, but if many more people, and even like, let's say it continued after the pandemic, it, I was starting to think about, we would arrange our homes differently, right? Mm -hmm. You wouldn't, because you, you, it's, it, it's hard to work in your bedroom, right? There's a lot of, there's a lot <laughs> of like weird stuff. So it's interesting to think about uh, if you did imagine a future where a lot of people who could work from home did work from home, how we would start changing our homes, mm -hmm. right? Um, so it's a whole lot of things to, 
A lot of things to think about. So one thing to think about is to remember that the Josh Marshall podcast is brought to you by Grady's Cold Brew Ice Coffee, the best cold brew ice coffee uh, in this solar system. Great stuff. We all drink it. It's a really great product, even above and beyond uh, Grady's being a sponsor of the Josh Marshall podcast. So you can find Grady's at Grady'sColdBrew.com. You can get a 20% discount on your order the first time by using the promo code TPM. And let me remind you something that we talked about uh, more in, in the earlier lockdown episodes. Find small businesses, independent businesses that are important to you and find ways to patronize them during this period because a lot of them will not be there when this is over if people like you who who find them important, who it's who they are an important part of your life, aren't finding ways to sustain them now. It's it's really true. Big corporations will be around and uh, maybe they'll go bankrupt and they'll get more, you know, they'll get new owners and something like that. But Procter and Gamble isn't going anywhere, and there will be someone. There will be some company that makes cars, and there'll be some company that flies planes. But your local restaurant, or your local market, or that service that you use. You no, know, there, there was actually there was an email that I got from a listener of the po- reader, but also a listener of the podcast, who I believe he and his wife they do music instruction locally, right? Um, and so they have largely moved to doing their music instruction. You know, your kid, I, I didn't get into what, what precisely, but you know, your kid takes piano lessons. So they're the ones who do the piano lessons. And so they've moved to doing it with Zoom and stuff like that. And great if that, if if everybody keeps doing it. There are just so many small operations that are really depend on all of us to go the extra length and 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 keep the money flowing, even if the services can't be quite the same as they were in the old, you know, in 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 in, in the old days. You know, there's certain things like I was telling my wife, like you know what, do we we haven't really used cable TV in forever. We can cut the cable TV thing and stuff like that. Comcast will do fine. But whatever that service is, whatever that little thing, they need you now. So think about that and think about if you are if you are financially able, even to lean forward if if like you know, service isn't quite what it was before, but keep it going because we need to do this for the future. Absolutely. That's a good point. All right, nice to talk to you both. Thank all you right. all and um talk to you next time. All right, later. Bye guys. All right, bye.